Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planning and leading thriving local churches. We pray that this message is a blessing. Friends, can I invite you to be upstanding? We're going to read from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 and onwards. This is the second, maybe third letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We don't have all of them, fun fact, but he says these words to this church uh, maybe around the back end of the 50s uh, in the first century, perhaps the early 60s, he says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though once we, were regard, we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat, friends. Awesome. Uh, when my wife, Kath, and I first started dating, one of the shows she told me she was watching is a show called Suits. And uh, you ever do that thing where you want to sort of create a topic of conversation between someone you want to create a topic of a conversation with, and so you start watching the things that they watch? Well, this is me in Suits. And the story of Suits tells the story of this up-and-coming guy who's sort of gone down the wrong track in life, and he's dabbling in the wrong crowds, he's doing the wrong things, and he's sort of experiencing substance abuse through a myriad of avenues and read between the lines. But he's got an incredible education, and he's got a photographic memory. And he finds himself longing to become the lawyer that he'd always trained to be able to become, but can't seem to break into because he can't break away from the life that he's been entangled by. His name's Mike Ross. And then one day through a flurry of events, this is episode one, the pilot, which just drags you in like all good Netflix shows should. Through a flurry of events, he finds himself in the bottom of a hotel room running away from the police who think that he's got marijuana in his briefcase. And he stumbles into an interview scene between him and one of the senior partners at a local law firm, law firm in Manhattan, New York. He ends up getting a job offer from this guy to become a lawyer and train under the great Harvey Specter, who's the more sharp-looking one in the photo behind me. And so on and so forth until about the end of the first season and Mike sort of upped his prowess and his skills in the lawyer sort of game. He's become proficient in the profession of law. But his old life keeps coming back to bite him and Harvey's mentorship time and time again keeps repeating to him saying, don't let your personal life get entangled with the profession. Don't let your life, your personal life, get entangled with what you're doing here at, Har at, uh, at what's it called? Pearson Hardman is what the firm's called. And there's this moment where the camera zooms in on Mike. You can cut the tension in the air with a knife. And Mike turns to Harvey and says these words. He says... I know what kind of lawyer I, I want to be. I do not know what kind of person I want to be. And it's the story of this man who 
previously had this personal life so entangling him, he's now got these professional avenues open up to him, but his personal life keeps getting in the way. And he turns to Harvey and he says, I know what kind of lawyer I want to be. It's really clear you've mapped it out. I can be this kind of person, but I don't know what kind of person I want to be. And in that phrase, he sums up two of the key questions that every human's ask about. Identity and purpose. Who am I? And what am I to do? Does what I do have anything to do with who I am? Identity and purpose. Now, Christians ask these two questions all the time. We ask, who has God called me to be? What has God made me to be? What is my identity as a follower of Jesus? What is my purpose as a follower of Jesus? Where do I find out about these things and how can I walk them forward with the sense of integrity and excitement and passion? Now, the reason I ask these two questions is because this afternoon we step into a moment in our church-wide calendar called Anointing Sunday. And Anointing Sunday is a moment in our calendar as a church-planting movement of churches where we want to ask this question, what's our identity and what's our purpose, and go back to Scripture and say, actually, this is not a task of discovery. This is a task of remembering, remembering what God's made true about us in terms of the identity that He's given us and the purpose that He invites us to walk in. So this afternoon, I actually want to preach short, and we're going to have a moment where we respond where we receive the identity that God's made available for us in Christ Jesus through what will feel a bit like a little ritual. But I invite you this afternoon to step into it because every single year we hear testimony from individuals saying, that was the moment where God told me what to do for my year as a professional. That was the moment where God told me how to act as a husband in my relationship with my wife. That was the moment as I started the year where I was reminded of who God's made me to be and what God's called me to do, my identity, and my purpose. This will make sense as we walk through, but I want to do two things this afternoon. I want to ask this question. What is anointing? I want to sit there for about seven to eight minutes. I want to teach there. So have your Bibles. And then I want to preach about what anointing should serve to do. And the big word here this afternoon is it should serve to make us remember our identity and our purpose. And so, with your Bibles ready, let's ask this question this afternoon. This will feel a bit like a teach, but just roll with me on it, and I pray it will be a blessing to us. We're asking this question, what is anointing? And the reason I want to ask this question is because it's quite contested. Uh, all of my sermons have some kind of chart or spectrum, so behind me on the screen you'll see, um, when you hear this language thrown around in churches, and language is so important, is it not? Uh, with language, we communicate what is at the heart of our faith, what is uh, at the heart of our picture of God. And when you hear this language thrown around in churches, uh, there's two sort of ends of the spectrum that people sort of assume when they're talking about what anointing is. On one end of the spectrum, you've got the charismatics. Bless them. Some of us are them. And I myself have a charismatic background. But the charismatics will often talk about not an anointing or anointing oil, but they'll talk about what they call the anointing. They'll throw what scholars and linguists call the definite article in front of it. And on one level, that's helpful. Uh, but they seem to suggest that there is this thing available to you, the power of God, the presence of God, the gifts that He's given you. And they're ethereally called the anointing. And what they therefore start to talk about is that this is the thing we can access uh, through a prescription of a myriad of ways. And so what are the ways? By exercising our faith, by believing on God, 
by praying in the Spirit. And they talk about the anointing purely as this ethereal thing. I wanna call it a state of being. The anointing is a state of being. And you'll hear words like this, access your anointing. Do not neglect the anointing. Uh, the anointing is available to you. That would be one way that common modern Christians talk about it. Other end of the spectrum is the Catholics. Bless them, some of us have a Catholic background. Some of us would consider ourselves Catholics even in this room. Uh, but the Catholics can talk about anointing actually with the language of the sacrament. And there's a particular sacrament in the Catholic Church. It's, it's called the Sacrament of Extreme Unction. And the Sacrament of Extreme Unction is oil put on an individual who's facing death. So they might be in palliative care or that kind of thing. And in that sort of uh, end of the spectrum in Christianity, uh, anointing becomes less a state of being you can access and more a particular substance that a particular kind of person can put on you. Now I share this not to critique or to condone or to celebrate, but just to say, actually when this question comes up, each of us might be bringing our own sort of framework to the pews that we sit in. What is anointing? I actually can't think of a more spiritual and religious word, right? Like, let's say you've got no faith background and you've stepped in here this afternoon, the preacher's up the front and they're like, we're gonna talk about anointing. You're like, I know exactly what that is and I've got no questions about it. I actually think that's very few of us. Anointing is one of the most religious words I can think of today, but in the ancient context, we're gonna sort of walk through the Bible here for a moment. In the ancient context, the, the word anointing is actually quite a mundane word. You'll see on the screen behind me, the Hebrew term for anointing is just meshach, and it means to smear with oil, which is probably how my forehead looks right now. But to meshach, and so you might think of the movement of sort of alternative indie beards, and one of the products you might wanna to buy to sort of shampoo and condition your beard is oil. Or one of the things you might wanna do if your bike is starting to squeak is to meshach the bearings with oil. In a Hebrew imagination, to meshach is actually just a very mundane thing to do, and meshach would happen all the time in the Old Testament. Uh, the, first, the first story, of something being mishucked in the Old Testament is actually the story of Jacob in the book of Genesis on the run from his brother Esau at what we call Jacob's Ladder. Now this is gonna be interesting because we move out of the religious and the super spiritual just into the mundane and the everyday in this particular story. But the story is that Jacob, he's on the run from his brother Esau and God encounters him by revealing to him a vision of heaven opening up, angels descending and ascending on the stairway right to where he's lying by a pile of rocks. Now what's important about that story is not necessarily the meaning uh, per se of, not the meaning, sorry, what's important about that story is, uh, is that basically it's sort of telling this story of heaven meeting earth here on the escalator with the angels. Now, um, whether it's actually what happened or whether it's just a vision that Jacob had, the takeaway point from the story is that here in this place while Jacob's on the run, God appeared to Jacob by marrying together heaven and earth in a vision. And so what Jacob does in this story towards the back end in verse 18 of Genesis 28 is he pours oil. Now what does he pour oil on? Let me read the text. Uh, it says this, verse 16 all the way through to 18. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he'd placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. 
The first instant of anointing you've got in the Old Testament story is the story of a rock being anointed. And you think, why is this significant? Stay with me. The second story that comes to my mind when I think of anointing is the priesthood. I'm reading through the book of Exodus at the moment, and towards the back end of the book of Exodus, uh, it's talking about the setting up of the priesthood. And the priesthood were elected by God through Moses to be the people that would administrate the temple, house God's very presence to the world, but the people who were set aside to administrate God's temple are the priesthood. And in chapter 29, it tells the story of Moses being instructed to set aside the priesthood with what? with the anointing of oil. So you've got rocks, you've got people. Next, you've got the story of the tabernacle actually being set up. It's towards the very back of the book of Exodus, chapter 49, 1 to 17. And it tells the story of the tabernacle being the thing which is instructed to be smeared with oil, meshucked with oil. And the last story that comes to my mind would just be the setting aside of kings. Now, here is what's happening. Here's the takeaway point when you look through the Old Testament story. What is being meshucked are things like objects, people, places. And the, the thing that marks the Old Testament anointing is that all of these things are temporal, they're limited, they're exclusive to an elite portion of people, the priesthood in this case. And lastly, what people get anointed for is often for a particular task. And the contrast between the Old and New Testament is that those four categories get completely blown up. What do I mean? Well, you go through, and what ends up happening is that which gets marked out by God as a meeting place between heaven and earth through the symbolism of oil ends up uh, going on people and places and exclusive things because of which, in all of these things failing, it opens up the question as to whether will there one day be someone who will come that will be anointed in a way that won't be temporary, won't be exclusive, won't be limited, and won't be finite. And that's where you get the term, um, you know, I'm going to skip through this, and uh, we jump to Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 tells the story of someone who's coming who will be anointed in a way that all the other objects and people and places uh, failed to be. And Isaiah 61 says these words. Isaiah 61, verse 1 to 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has meshucked me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And it tells this story of this practice that symbolized the marrying together of heaven and earth that always fell on finite humans, broken institutions, or limited priesthoods. And it says, actually, there's one day gonna be a person who will be meshucked by God, or actually what ended up becoming the word to describe this one as the anointed one, the Mashiach of God, and they will come, and they will do something because of which the anointing of God, it won't be limited to the elite, it won't be finite to those who are special, it won't be temporal, and it won't be exclusive. It will be available to all. It will be accessible by those who uh, uh, access it. It will be perpetual. It will be universal. It'll be inclusive. And whereas, here's the key point. Whereas the, the spirit of, um, whereas the anointing of God came in the Old Testament through oil to set apart people for a particular task, the anointing of God would come through this individual to set up God's people for 
the task. Now, why do we do all that? Why do I go that long way around to, to bring us to this little point? Well, it's to make this point that anointing purely means this. Let me just borrow some words from people that speak in much more simpler terms than me. Tim Mackey from The Bible Project. He would put it like this. If you go forward two slides, I think, Miller. Thank you. Maybe two more. Hmm. In the Bible, to anoint is to recognize a bridge between heaven and earth. That's it. In the Bible, to anoint is to recognize a bridge between heaven and earth, which means the anointing is not a state of being. It's not something we access through white knuckling it or to do what Tim Keller calls working ourselves into a faith lather. We don't say, I need to access the anointing and get my gifting and God's power. No, no, no. This is why we read from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. The story is that Jesus came as the anointed one, the Messiah, and he lived the life that all humans should have lived. He died the death that we deserve because of which he being the anointed one becomes the marking place between heaven and earth and the invitation for Christians is to find themselves in relationship with Jesus Christ because of which, and here's the real bottom line takeaway point, because of which we become little anointed ones in him. In other words, Jesus was the anointed one once and for all, so we can be the anointed ones as we walk in relationship with him. And that's the takeaway point. And this becomes clear in the book of Acts chapter 11, I think it is, uh, where the first time people that follow Jesus move from being those who are called followers of the way to being called Christians. And the interesting linguistic thing here, and I just, I'll move past the teaching in a moment, but the interesting linguistic thing here is really simple. Uh, in the Old Testament, to meshach is to smear with oil. One day, we're awaiting the time someone comes who is the, uh, the anointed one of God, the Mashiach. That's the Hebrew term for Messiah. The Greek term for Messiah is Christos, and the first time Christians are referred to as Christians is Christuntes, which basically just means this, Christians, if they're in relationship with Jesus Christ, the anointed one, they are little anointed ones. What's, what's, what am I trying to say here? And you might think, Alex never teaches like this. I've got to be honest, this is one of the hardest things I've had to prepare for in my preaching at New Life Brisbane. And I'm going off script here for a second. Anointing. Being smeared with oil. Being chosen by God. Being set apart in Christ to be his hands and feet in the world. It's just the identity of a Christian. And that's really what I'm trying to say through a mix and jumble of words. To be anointed by God is to be set apart with his spirit deposited so that you might be Jesus' hands and feet in the world. Now, what does this look like in each of our lives? Well, I think it means we need to remember what God's made true of us in Jesus Christ, which is that we are the little anointed ones. We are those set apart by the spirit of God to be Jesus' hands and feet in the world. And I wanna use this to talk less into purpose and more into identity. Um, actually, no, more into purpose and less into identity. When it comes to identity, uh, there are a number of ways we can think through who God's called us to be in this world.
2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Here's what I want to say to us this afternoon. And if you know me and my preaching, you know this kind of never happens to me. Um, I felt really prepared coming into this afternoon. So I really appreciate your grace as I fumble around with my words in the pulpit right now. The point of Anointing Sunday is for us as Christians to recall that God has made us followers of Him and nothing else matters. And the reason this is important is because there's so many things that are vying for our attention as we think who God's called us to be in the world. There's so many things that would chart the matrix and the criteria by which we think about our identity. And as I step into this, I'd invite the band to come and join me. And as I'm speaking, I'd invite you to think through what God might be saying to each of us as I've sort of ran through a bunch of scriptures just now. But identity is super important. If you don't know who you are, you don't know what you're called to do. And the Christian story would take the story of the world and invert it on its head and say, actually, what we do is a result of who we are, in, in term, as opposed to the opposite. Uh, and so the moment we're being invited into this afternoon is actually to remember who God's made you to be. I don't know if you remember the story of the Lion King, but Simba's on the run from his destiny, becoming king in his father's kingdom. Uh, and he sits down by a pond and he's, and he's sitting in the dark and he's wondering, how, how do I have the strength to go through with what it means for me to be king in my father's kingdom? Which is very similar to the kind of question a Christian should ask about what God's called them to do. How do I have the power? How do I have the strength? How do I do it? When I look at who I am, I'm weak. I don't know how to do this. And he's standing before uh, the heavens and from the heavens comes the clouds and then from the clouds comes the voice and it's the voice of his father. And his father, here's what his father does as Simba's running away from his destiny. His father doesn't say, hey, here's a five-point plan as to how you can sort of figure out how to be king. Here's a crash course in royal living. His father comes along and says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And if Simba was just to remember who he was, he'd actually be able to become the kind of king that his father had left aside for him to inherit, the stewarding of the kingdom. And Jesus Christ does a very similar thing in his life and death and his invitation for those who follow him. He says, actually, what I've made you to be is kings and priests in my world. Kings and priests that, whereas the old kings always chose the wrong way, by my spirit, you might be able to do the righteous and good and wise thing. Priests that, whereas the priesthood neglected the poor and started to do all the religious checkbox things, but actually didn't love God with their hearts and with their lives. By God's spirit in Christ, we might become the kind of priests that the world really needs. Why? Not because we get a crash course on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not because we get a, a how-to tutorial from YouTube on what it looks like to be a ruler in God's world. But by remembering who God has made us to be. When we remember who God has made us to be, we're actually able to live the life that God has called us to live. And the logic of the Bible, the ark of the New Testament, is always to keep those two things in that very order. The world will come to us and say, 
Uh, you are what you do. You are the sum result of all your tasks, your professions. So when we ask friends at a party, uh, who are you? They will often list their job or what's your current station in life? We'll list our roles. But the Bible asks us not to list what we do as the fundamental part of our identity, but to list what God has made true of us. This is how every book in the New Testament is structured. You read the book of Romans and Paul spends 11 chapters saying, this is what God has made true about you in Christ and then a few chapters on how we should therefore live. You read the book of Ephesians and it says for three chapters, this is what God has made true about you in Christ and then three chapters on how we should live. Every single argument in the New Testament is not about how we should live so we might get an identity and feel stable in ourselves. It's about what God has done on our behalf to give us the stability of identity so we can walk out in the freedom and purpose for which He's called us. Why do I say all this? One, my notebook's closed. But two, If you live your life trying to figure out who you are by what you do, you'll feel absolutely enslaved. My illustration for this is I come to land and invite us to respond is none other than the story, You Are Special by Max Licato. Anyone know this story? It's the story of the Wemmicks that are rolling around in Wemmickville. It's not even called that, but go with me on it. And these little creatures, wooden dolls, they judge each other by how they live, how shiny their skin is, and whether they live the right way for the rest of society. And so if you do the right thing, you get a star. If you do the wrong thing, or you're just not as cool, or you're not as acceptable, you get a dot. And basically there are those that have heaps of stars, and those that have a few stars and a lot of dots. And there's this one guy, I can't remember his name, let's call him Bob. Bob's got a bunch of dots, And he thinks to himself, I'm no good. I'll never amount to anything. What's the point? But one day he meets a girl named Lucy. And Lucy's got no dots. And she's also got no stars. And she walks around not caring what people think and absolutely free to be herself. And he asks her, what do you know that I don't know? And she says, you gotta go meet the maker. So he goes and meets the maker. And as he walks in to the workshop, head down, dots covering his body, he hears the voice of his maker and the maker says, hi Bob, I know you, I made you, I love you. I don't love you because of the stars on your arm, I love you because I made you. I don't love you in spite of the dots on your body, I love you because I made you. And what Lucy's experience that set her free from the stickers is that if you let the love that I've got for you as your maker define you, then the stars and dots don't stick anymore. You know who you are and you're free. And as Bob walks away, he finally believes it in his heart and one of the stickers fall to the ground. That's Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians 5. That's the narrative arc of the Bible. If we are in Christ, We've got the anointing of God by the Spirit of Jesus. We know our identity. We know our purpose. So here's the point of this afternoon. It's to take a moment in our church calendar and through ritual, the smearing on of the mashak of oil on our foreheads, just to receive the identity and the purpose that God's given us. And so can I invite you to stand this afternoon? We're gonna worship, we're gonna pray, and we're gonna move into a moment where we've actually got myself and my wife our elders and their spouses and our prayer leaders stationed around the room this afternoon, ready to anoint you with oil, not because it's a magical substance, 
not because it'll help you access a state of being, but because it helps you remember what God has made true about you in Jesus Christ, your purpose, your identity. And we would love to take a moment to pray a blessing over you individually and with your families and to help you remember and recall what God has made true about you in Jesus Christ. And so we're gonna sing a song and after this first song, you'll be reminded just to come forward. We'll be in each corner of the room. And here's the invitation. We get incredible testimony from this every single year. But the invitation is this, come as a community and remember what God has made true about you. Let all the stickers and the muck and the mire of people's opinions wash off and receive the identity and purpose that God has called you to live in as His followers. Would you make that your experience this afternoon? In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you would like prayer, you can contact us at church.nu or through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray you have a great week. Be blessed.